It's good to see you all this morning. Um, Marilyn Monroe once said that fame is a very fickle thing, and she knows it. She says that it has its compensations, but it also has its drawbacks, and she had known both. You know, we live in this society that's fascinated with celebrities, at least for a while, right? Um, you know, Hollywood provides us this abundance of opportunities to go out and make something of ourselves. We, we have this opportunity to go from rags to riches, from, from being a nobody one day to being the body the next day. And you see this in reality TV shows especially. I mean, think about American Idol, right? You take somebody, some undiscovered talent, and you exalt them to the place of worship in the media, right? You have shows like Survivor that take nobodies and they make them heroes. Or shows like uh, The Bachelor who set up these relationships and then exploit every juicy detail, right? And we see the consequences if the, in this. If you follow like those where are they now kind of stories, you see the tragedy that comes through these claim to fame. I mean, you can have them. Basically, anybody can have them, whether you have no talent or not, or whether you're not pretty or whatever. I mean, go on Wipeout, dude. And you can, <laughs> you can at least make a fool of yourself that way. And you can have your 15 minutes of fame. But in reality, that's all that it is. It's purely 15 minutes, and then it's gone. You know, at best, we become like Marilyn Monroe, become an icon, right? A face that everyone knows, but a soul that, that no one really knows. A face that no one forgets, but a soul that no one knows. You know, an icon is really nothing more than a symbol, and an idol is nothing more than a false image. And that's it. This reality led author, American author Henry Miller to write, and we, we recognize this phrase, fame is an elusive thing here today and gone tomorrow. But he continues on, the fickle, shallow mob raises its heroes to the pinnacle of approval today and then hurls them into oblivion tomorrow at the slightest whim. Cheers today, hisses tomorrow. Utter forgetfulness in just a month. This is not just the way it is here in America. This is the way that it's always been. This is how fame works because this is how the crowd operates. A popular opinion is just that. It's an opinion of what is popular. It's every bit as right as it is wrong. I mean, there's no guarantee as to whether or not this is true. It's just an opinion of what people think is popular and soon enough they figure out it's not and then they're gone. with the crowd, there's always this buzz. And everybody wants to get in on it. Everybody wants to participate in the excitement and the hype. But no one ever really seems to know why. It just seems like the thing to do. It's, it's popular opinion. But nobody really understands the consequences. They just go along with it because it seems like the popular thing to do. It's what everybody's doing. Sounds like fun. And so we mindlessly go along embracing this opinion without ever coming to opinion of our own, right? The top ten countdown in music is evidence of that. That's all I'm saying. Um, 
And this is exactly what's happening in our text for today in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Again, this great crowd has formed around Jesus. They've heard of his fame and they've gathered to catch the buds. They want to participate in this excitement. But for all the hype, this crowd remains confused. And their anonymity in the crowd allows them the luxury of never really coming to a decision, an opinion of their own, in who Jesus really is. They can get all caught up in the fanfare, the, 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 the fantastical just crowd and, and all the buzz there, but never really come to a decision on who he is. So they'll go along with the crowd and whatever popular opinion decides about him, that's what they're going to take. And so they may cheer him today, but tomorrow they're going to throw him into oblivion. So with that, let's read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. That's page 838 in the Bibles there in the chairs if you want to follow along. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard of all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And when the unclean spirits saw him, they fell on the ground down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went upon the mountain, and he called to to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons." He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This passage is basically split up into two sections. The many and the few, the crowd and the called, the indecisive and the disciples. So first, let's look at the crowd in verses 7 through 12. Now, after Jesus had just challenged uh, the religious leaders of the day on their false understanding of the law of the Sabbath, the religious leaders, they went out to plot his destruction, and Jesus then leaves. He, He leaves the city of Capernaum, and he goes out. He makes his way along the Sea of Galilee. And verses 7 and 8 say that a great crowd followed him from Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This is a huge crowd. This is a multitude. Literally, it means a polyplethora of people. I mean, think about a plethora is a lot. Poly means many. Many plethoras of people had gathered around, I mean, from beyond Israel's border. Now, I, I put up a map here so that you guys can see where they're coming from. All right? Um, can you get the next slide? All right. I, I don't know if you can make this out. I'm going to try to use my finger here. There you go. There's the Sea of Galilee, right? Jesus has just left Capernaum, right? And he's making his way around the Sea of Galilee. And it says that people from Galilee, um, this region of Galilee around here, it's actually hard to move your hand like this. It, 
So around here, um, I mean, people from Judea down here and Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem there. And Idumea, way down here. People from uh, beyond the Jordan. That's the east side of the Jordan here on the right. From Decapolis and Perea and, and up here north. And then uh, it says from around Tyre, which is way up here along the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Sidon, which is up there. <laughs> it's about 20 or 30 miles north of Tyre, right along the coast. So you can't even see. So what you see is that there are people from as far as 120 miles away coming up to see Jesus. Now, this doesn't seem like very far for us because we can just hop in our cars and two hours we're there. But for them, this means you're walking 120 miles or you're riding a donkey and it's rough terrain. It's dirty. It's hard work. People are coming from that far away. Now, this green area on the map, that is Herod the Great's kingdom. Okay, Herod is the, the vassal king of Israel at the time. Vassal because they are under Roman authority, right? The Roman Empire is kind of kicking their, their tail and they have to do whatever they say. And so he's just kind of like the token king of this area right around here in the green, right? Um, so you've got people that are coming even beyond Herod's kingdom, What what, what is understood as Israel at the time. They're, they're going from beyond that. I mean, this is a long way to go. Um, and some of these areas, like Judea and Jerusalem and Galilee, would have been almost exclusively Jewish. But other areas, like particularly around Tyre and Sidon, would have been almost exclusively Gentile. And that's significant, right? <clears throat> this area that, that Mark speaks of goes beyond the Israel as they knew it at the time. In fact, it is reminiscent of the Israel of old, the, the boundaries of the promised land that, that God had once given to the people of Israel before they had rebelled against him. It used to be that the, the boundary extended beyond Tyre and Sidon in the north all the way down, including all this stuff over to the right and even further down below Idumea. It used to be a great nation, at least larger than it was there. And these people coming from there is representative of the fact that God is drawing these people from what used to be the promised land. This crowd had far surpassed the one that came out to see John the Baptist in chapter 1. And it includes Gentiles, which is a foreshadowing of God's true Israel being a light to the nation. We see that Jesus' fame and glory uh, was beginning to reach the nations. Right? It's meant to fulfill the purposes that Israel was always to do. And verse 8 picks up. When the crowd heard of all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. These people from as far as 120 miles away, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, began to get word about Jesus, about his authority. They heard that Jesus had authority to teach, not like the religious leaders of the day. They heard that Jesus had the ability to heal people with sicknesses and diseases, that he, he was able to restore the lame, that he was able to exercise demons, that, that he was challenging the religious leaders of the day. He was con- 
he was professing that he had authority to forgive sin. And so they were curious about this guy, and they were willing to travel all this distance at great expense to themselves just to catch a piece of it, just to, to be a part of the buzz, to be a part of the excitement, to be in the crowd, to be a fanatic, if you will, of Jesus. They were excited and intrigued. They, they wanted to be amazed and amused. They wanted to be entertained. And so they jumped in with popular opinion and went out to see this spectacle. This man that they had heard about and what he could do. And that's significant. They cared about what he could do. They weren't concerned about who he is. They weren't concerned about why he came. They weren't concerned about what it means to follow him. They just wanted to see what he could do. They didn't want to hear his message. They, they just wanted to see the signs and the wonders and the miracles that he performed. Jesus was a celebrity to them. He was an icon, an entertainer, and nothing more. Many, it said, came to be healed. So that those with diseases pushed their way towards him so hard that he actually had to get in a boat lest they crush him. All right? The nice thing about a boat is it kind of goes further out, right? So I don't have to worry about that. <clears throat> but they didn't want to know him. They only wanted to touch him. He was no more important to them than what he could do for them. They were so selfish that they pressed in so hard just to get from him what they wanted that they were willing even to crush him. You know, this amazes me that Jesus, who knows their hearts, who knows their motives, what they really wanted, still reached out his hand and touched them. He knew what they just wanted to use him. He knew that they just wanted him for what he could do for them, that they didn't really want to know him. And yet he still extends his hand, he extends his grace, and he gives them what they want. It's unbelievable to me that Jesus would do that. I mean, would you do that? I wouldn't do that. I'd say get lost. You don't want to know me. You just want to use me. But still he does it. Even though it will produce no lasting change in them, Jesus extends his hand to heal them, even though they might crush him. I mean, this obviously shows his love and his compassion for people even in the spite of their acting as enemies towards him, that they're willing to, to go to no end to touch him, to, to even see his, him being destroyed. But it does something more than that. I mean, we all recognize that Jesus is loving and compassionate, but it also points to the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't just heal because he had compassion. He healed because he was the promised Messiah. You remember back when we looked at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, what we saw is that Jesus is fulfilling all these Old Testament promises, that he was causing the blind to see, he was causing the deaf to hear, that he's causing the mute to speak, the lame to leap for joy. All these promises are happening. He's fulfilling all this stuff. And people that would hear his message and they would know Old Testament scripture, they ought to be able to put two and two together and see, this Jesus, he's the Messiah. Look at what he's doing here. But they didn't do that. They were blinded by their own ambitions and lusts and desires. They wanted to take from him. He was, he was a means of grace to them and nothing more. They did not care about who he was. 
you know, we can look at this, and it's easy for us to want to shake our heads, right? I mean, how could they do this? Oh, this is Jesus. You've traveled for 120 miles up to see this man who's preaching and teaching with authority that has surpassed any religious leader that you have ever seen. You've looked at Jesus right in the face, and all you want to do is touch him so that you can be healed. All you want to do is use him. This is ridiculous. Don't you see that this is the Son of God? It's easy for us to say that, right? It's easy for us to look down upon them for what they're doing. It seems so blatant, so evident. How do we not catch this? Well, I wonder how many of us do the very same thing. I mean, honestly, I wonder how many of us just come to Jesus because of the benefits, what he can give us, what we can take from him. And we don't care about him. We don't love him. We don't want to follow him. We just want the goods. We just want what he can give us. You know? I, man, I feel really bad about my sin. You know, I, I, I want to I be safe from the consequences of my sin. I want to be with my loved ones in heaven. I, I, I want to be freed from this guilt that, that I'm experiencing. I want the blessing that you can give me. But I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want to follow you. We don't want him to be Lord of our lives. We don't love him. We, we only want... We only love what he can give us. And so you see, our motives are really no better than that of the crowds. There's a real danger in focusing on the what, right? We looked at it last week and, the, and four weeks ago before when we were dealing with the Pharisees, right? And they were really focused on the what in just a different sense. I mean, they were legalists. When they were focusing on the what, they were focusing on what they could do to be saved what they could do to please God, what they could do to barter with God so that he could give them what they really wanted, which was not him. Right? They just wanted to earn their salvation. Well, this crowd is really doing the same thing. Um, with the religious leaders, you know, I challenged you guys and said, listen, we can, we can be very religious and hate Jesus. We have to decide whether we love him or we hate him. But we can do the same thing even if we're like the crowd. Even if we recognize the fact that we can't save ourselves. That I, I can't cause this disease to go away from me. I can't, can't cause myself to walk or to do any of these things. I really need Jesus to do this for me. I really need this. I can't save myself. I recognize that. And so I'm going to do everything I can to go out and touch him. But I don't want him. I'm focused on what he can do. I'm not focused on who he is. I'm guilty of the same thing. Each of us must choose whether we love him or we hate him. I mean, if we're coming to them because we, we focus on what he can do, what he can give me, that he can give me a clean conscience or a way to feel better about myself or a way of helping me be okay enough for God, we can do that and we can still hate Jesus. We can still hate him. We can still live in rebellion towards him. We can still treat him as if he's our meal ticket, a means to our own ends. We want him to save us from the consequences of sin, but we still love our sin. And we return to it over and over and over again. And what you see is we develop this cycle of false confession. Oh, Jesus, I feel bad about my sin. Please take away the guilt and the consequences of it. And then you 
turn and you run right back to it. And then you feel guilty and bad again. And you come, and it's just a circle of false confession. It's not true repentance. Because you don't love Him. You love your sin. The Bible calls this licentiousness and immorality. No bones about it. We assume upon the grace of God thinking that Jesus will save us in our sin, not from our sin. Do you hear the difference in that? A preposition means everything. Jesus doesn't save us so we can continue in our same patterns of sin. He saves us from our sin. The cross not only takes away the penalty of our sins in the past when Jesus died on the cross, but it is currently removing the power of sin in our lives so that we can walk in obedience, so that we can walk in the Spirit, and it will save us from the presence of our sin so that there is no sin within us at all. We're saved from our sins so that we might be holy, not just in declaration, but that our words, our thoughts, and our deeds would be made holy. And if you love Him, you will not assume upon His grace, but you will desire to walk in His ways. You will desire to be transformed because you see Him for who He is, and you love Him. You love Him. Not just merely His benefits. The crowd, they, you know, they marveled at what Jesus could do. And they would do anything to get close to Him. But they were still ignorant of who He is. Uh, they were amazed and astonished by His entertaining signs and wonders, but they did not believe His message. They did not believe who He is. This is surprising in light of the fact that even the demons profess who He was. I mean, verses 11 and 12 It tells us that whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down prostrate before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I mean, could you imagine this? Could you imagine what this is like? You are—you have traveled 120 miles. You are excited because you've heard about this guy. And you guys are crowding around. There's this polyplethora of people crowding around Jesus. He's out there in a boat so you won't trample him to death. And all of a sudden, this dude that's standing next to you falls down on his face. And he starts screaming out, trembling, You're the Son of God! You're the Son of God! And Jesus says, Hey man, quiet. Out. And then the dude stands up and he's in his right mind. Can you imagine what that's like? That would be unbelievable. How could you not listen to what the dude just said? He said, you're the son of God. Get it, get it right? It's right there. And we've seen this before as we've gone through Mark, that Jesus is proclaimed both by heaven and by hell. Those are the two areas, the two regions that recognize who he truly is. The first one was at his baptism. When God thunders down from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then many, many times throughout Mark, we see the demons fall on their faces. And they proclaim, we know who you are, Holy One of God. We know who you are. You're the Son of God, Jesus. We know who you are. They know because they saw Jesus in his glorified state before his incarnate state, before he took on flesh. They saw him before they rebelled against him. 
They know who He is. And so when they come along and they see Him, they drop to their knees because they recognize that He is the authority. They recognize that they have no hope. And so they shudder and they tremble in fear. In fear. They profess Him to be Lord in fear as they are on their knees. But you know what? They're not saved. They're not saved. They've got the profession right. They've got the position right. But they don't love Him. It's the same way with the crowd that heard these men over and over and over again, right? They stood right there and they listened to the profession. Profession from Jesus' enemies. And they didn't get it because they didn't love him. The demons are subjected to Jesus in every single way. When Jesus speaks, they have no option but to comply. Jesus' authority is that great that those who would stand in opposition to him, the greatest, when they see and recognize who he is, they have no choice but to fall on their knees and shudder before him. He speaks and they're gone. That's the reality of Jesus' authority. But it doesn't matter if you don't love him. I wonder how many of us are sitting here right now and we're really unimpressed with this. We're really not struck by the significance of what Mark is telling us here. That the demons would profess that this is the Son of God. That they have to give credit to where credit is due. Though they hate Him, though they despise Him, though they want to see Him destroyed, they cannot help but proclaim the truth. That this is the Son of God. And as we've gone through Mark, we've seen that that Jesus has this authority, this unbelievable authority, over and over and over again. And we sit here and we're just like, oh, yep, Jesus is Lord. Amen. You know, it just, you know, I wonder why we're here. I, you know, we've asked this question multiple times. Why are you here? Are you here because you enjoy the show? Because you like the music? Because you got some friends that are hanging out here? This seems like a lot of fun. You like, you know, listening to this joker who stands up here and talks nonsense about the authority of Christ? Is that, is that fun for you? you? Why are you here? Seriously. Don't be like the crowd who will stand here because this is somehow popular opinion in the, in the crowd that you walk in and not be challenged by this and not be amazed and impressed by this. Mark is telling you that Jesus has all the authority of God. The God who created you. The God who sustains you. The God who gave you the breath that you just took. Jesus has all the authority of that God. That Jesus that causes Satan's minions to tremble in fear. Do you understand the weight of your offense against him? Do you understand that our rebellion and our abuse of his grace deserves God's wrath? This is weighty stuff. We've got to catch this. These words should strike us at our very core. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of 
God, this man who died a gruesome and unjust, bloody death on a cross to pay the penalty for sins, offered himself freely so that you can be reconciled to a God that you don't deserve to be reconciled to. You can't earn this. You don't deserve this. You deserve wrath because you have willfully placed yourself under God's wrath. You have willfully rebelled against God and tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. I mean, how much of your life do you go through without any recognition of God? I'm going to do what I want to do. Right? We're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. All of us. But Jesus died for that. Jesus died to save you from that. Not in that. From that. And Jesus rose from the grave so that you might have eternal life with him. So that you might know him. So that you might have his spirit to live within you. You ought to fall prostrate before him, trembling like the demons, because he's the son of God. That's what he deserves. That's the worship that he deserves. He owes my, I owe him my life. I owe him my everything. How dare I presume upon his grace? How dare I confess this truth with my mouth, but I live for myself? Because we do it all the time. How dare I treat Christianity like it's some kind of show? Something that I can show up to when I feel like it, when it fits into my schedule? Rather than recognizing that this is my identity. This is who I am. But I have been saved by the Son of God, who I owe Him my life. You know, this idea of just going somewhere because you're entertained, because your friends go there, because they've got a nice show where the pastor makes me feel good about myself. I mean, this is the kind of trash that Mark is preaching against. This is popular opinion. This is not the gospel. His concern is that you know, without a doubt, that Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life. A life that you and I could not live, and that he gave that life as a ransom to pay for your life. To pay for your life so that you might live for him. Not so that you can continue to live for yourself and just, you know, live it up with Jesus one day. <clears throat> this is not easy believism. This demands your life. This is true discipleship. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not enough to be a fan. It's not enough to confess Him as your Savior, but live as if He's not. It's not enough for you even to confess that Jesus is Lord, but in reality, He's not your Lord. It's not enough. It's not enough just to kind of come and hang out and do some spiritual things. It demands your very life. That's what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, we should stand in awe and wonder like the crowd, but we need to realize that these entertainments, these signs and wonders that Jesus performed have no power to save. They bring validity to the gospel message, but they cannot incite or sustain faith. That comes only 
by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only he can do that. And so you have to decide, are you going to be a fan or are you going to be a follower? That's what it means. And so we'll see in verses 13 through 19 that this is not something that you can simply receive for yourself. To respond to the gospel, you must first be called, you must be made a follower of Jesus. There's a vast difference between liking Jesus or being around Jesus and following Jesus. This crowd kept following Jesus around. They liked what Jesus could do, especially when he started filling their stomachs. But they didn't follow Jesus. This crowd came as they pleased and they used Jesus for their own ends, but, but not those who truly followed Jesus. Not those who truly became his disciples. I mean, verse 13 says that Jesus, he left the crowd and he went up on a mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. He left the crowds behind. He withdrew from the crowd. He went up on the mountain, reminiscent of what Moses did when he was receiving the law. And, and he calls to himself, himself the one that he desired. And they came. This is actually not a very good translation. It's better, it's better translated that he summoned those whom he willed and they obeyed. These disciples didn't pick Jesus. He determined them. As a king summons the servants, this call of Jesus highlights his sovereign lordship. Jesus chose them. Some could argue that this is just Jesus calling the twelve apostles. That there's somehow a special call on the twelve that's not that, that doesn't apply to all who would be disciples of Jesus, right? Because I mean, you see that there's this polyplethora, there's this there great multitude of people that are around Jesus right now, and they keep following him everywhere. Well, they're not included in that. Well, we see later in, in Luke chapter ten that Jesus sends out seventy-two. To go and do his will. So surely those are disciples too. I mean, that's, that's gotta be different than these twelve apostles. Or we know that by the time he hit Acts 1 and Jesus ascends into heaven, there's 120 people that saw it. They too would have been considered his disciples. I mean, surely this is unique to these twelve and it doesn't represent all who follow Christ as his disciples, right? This is a different kind of call. This is a special kind of call, right? Right? Well, I mean, clearly he's calling the twelve, but no, it's both. It's both. Mark is using Jesus' call of the twelve to challenge us to think about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He's not exalting them as the special elite. In fact, we'll see that who they're comprised of, and it's not really impressive, right? This is representative of Jesus' call to all people. Now, there are two kinds of calls in Scripture. There's this general call to salvation, where all people everywhere are called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, that's a general call. But there's also a specific call. A call that must happen if we are to come to Jesus. Right? Apart from that, we will be like that crowd. We may be around, we may be intrigued, we may be a fan, but we're not a follower of Jesus unless we have this special call. And that's what we see right here. Some other passages that you can look at are 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
there Paul is talking to Timothy. And he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. And get this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of our response, not because of our choosing Jesus, but because of his own purpose and grace with which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the world began. Add in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. These 12 men didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. And in the same way, all who are truly disciples of Jesus do not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. So if you balk at this, just know that it's in Scripture. We've seen it clearly. But also know this. Every time the Bible talks about election... God's special call. Every time the Bible talks about predestination and God's sovereignty in salvation, it's always meant to be a comfort, an encouragement, a means of assurance, a means of praise and rejoicing. It's always presented in love. Ephesians chapter 1, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. Right? It's never ripped apart from this. This is not a cruel, tyrannical thing. This is a grace to us because none of us deserve it. These men were called by Jesus and they answered the call. What, did they, what, did, what call did they answer? Verses 14 and 15. Jesus says that he appoint, uh, it says that Jesus appointed twelve whom he also called, he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. The word here, appointed, is better translated made. Jesus made the twelve. He made them and he named them. This is what Jesus did. He made them and he named them. And if you're familiar at all with the Bible, this should draw you back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God made the heavens and the earth and all things that existed on them and he selected Adam to name all creatures. And here's Jesus, according to Romans 5, the second Adam who is now making a new people for himself and naming them. You see what's happening here? That there's a new creation that's happening. Jesus is recreating his true people of God through new birth in Jesus Christ. This is regeneration that's beginning to happen here. We're, we're starting to see this new life will be given through new birth in Jesus Christ and His followers will take on the name that, they, that He has given them and they will embrace His new commission on their lives. Mark says that Jesus made the twelve and named them apostles so that, this is a purpose statement, For the purpose that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Here you see that they will be with him, that 
and that they will do what he did. The very things he would give them part of his authority to do the very things that Jesus was doing, preaching and casting out demons. We've seen this over and over and over again. So there's this relationship proximity, right? That they are with him. You're with somebody because you know them and because you love them, right? If you don't know them and you don't love them, you're not with them. And I'm not talking about knowing about. I'm not talking about intellectual information. I'm talking about knowing them and loving them. And there's also this activity that they would preach, that they would talk about Jesus, that they would do the things that he did. There's this doing, there's this telling, there's this acting in the way that Jesus acted. And so what you see here is something significant. If you are to be a disciple of Jesus, it requires a relational proximity and it requires activity. Right? You are a disciple if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, and if you do the things that he did, i.e. You, you talk to others about Jesus, you, your being as a disciple is defined by what you know, what you love, and what you do. This ought to resound with those guys that are training to be ministers here at Redeemer. You should have heard this before. Who you are is defined by what you know, what you love, and what you do. And we see that here. They are with Jesus and they do the very things that he did. They proclaim the gospel and they carried on his authority in activity. To truly know and love Jesus, then you are with Jesus. And if you are with Jesus, you will do what Jesus calls you to do. Jesus has called each of us to make disciples. We know that from the Great Commission. To start before they're ever believers and to help them to reach maturity in Christ. That's what it means to make disciples. Now you may never have the ability to cast out demons. But what we do, the significance of what we do, is that it brings validity to the message that we proclaim. So how we live our lives ought to be done in such a way that when people see us and they hear our message, they give glory to our Father in Heaven. And they know that it's our Father in Heaven because we've told them. It's not enough just to do stuff, you know, to be really altruistic and benevolent and all that. I mean, anybody can do that. What sets us apart as Christians is because they know that we proclaim the Gospel and that we live according to the Gospel. And that ought to have some huge effects. I mean, if you, if you don't know Jesus, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. But also, if you don't proclaim Jesus, or you don't do the things that Jesus calls you to do, then you can't be a disciple of Jesus. We need to live in such a way that we bring validity to the truthfulness of the gospel. And this is radical. This is radical stuff. This is not just coming and doing some stuff like coming on uh, to a, a, attending a church on Sunday or going and singing some songs or occasionally reading my Bible, right? This goes far beyond that. This is this happens when people that have nothing in common come together in Christ, they're united with Christ and they have clear and evident love for one another. That doesn't make sense to the world. 
That's the church. But that brings validity to the gospel message. It brings validity to the gospel message when people see that there's a change in you, that your life is really being transformed by the gospel, that you are not the same as who, you're not the same person that you used to be. Chet, you're different. You're a different guy. I don't even know you anymore. Yes, let me tell you why. That brings validity. And when we gather together to achieve God's purposes that He has called us to do, that we embrace our mission, that we live with gospel intentionality, that we are buzzword missional. Right? We bring, we bring validity to the gospel message. That's why to be a disciple is not just knowing some stuff about Jesus. That's why being a disciple is not just loving some stuff about Jesus and rejoicing in all his benefits that are applied towards me. Right? It's that we know Jesus intimately. We love Jesus intimately. And we do the things that Jesus has called us to do. To preach, to teach, to make disciples, to, to be active. And this demands our lives. Right? We can't do this just because we happen to take little slots out of our schedule that we offer up to God. Our lives are meant to put the gospel on, our, on display. Our lives together are meant to put the gospel on display. Which is why, if you're sitting in church and you don't know the people around you, you're not doing it. It requires a relationship. Your life is meant to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. So, does it? Would you honestly say that that characterizes your life? Really? When people look at me, they see somebody different? They see somebody that stands apart from the crowd? Or am I just one of many standing in the crowd? Are they seeing my life being transformed? Are they seeing me love others in such a way that, that it doesn't make sense to the world? Are you any different than anyone else? This call to discipleship requires your life to look like Christ's. So would you say that it does? I mean, that's what it's intended to do for all those who would truly be his disciples. That we are with him and that we do what he does. That's our commission. Now we need to look at what does this community of faith look like? All right, verses 17 through 19. This identifies Jesus' new community. This is the beginning of the new people of God. He made 12 new Jewish leaders because Jesus is making a new Israel. Right? They're Jewish because it's meant to point to Israel. There's 12 because there were 12 tribes in Israel. This is, this is a replacement, a fulfillment, a pointing to the true people of God, which is the church. The new people of God under Jesus Christ as their head. It says he appointed 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Uh, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What you're looking at is not a legal list 
of official titles, right? This is not the names that you would see appearing on their social security card so that the IRS could identify them, right? This is not an official list. This is a very informal, very personal list. I mean, it contains first names, it contains nicknames, it, can, it, it contains names that Jesus gave to some of them that wasn't really their name at all, but it became their name, right? And this is a very informal list. I mean, leading as always is Simon, who is also called Peter, right? Um, the impetuous one. Next is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are called sons of thunder because they're hotheads. That's why they're called that. They're a bunch of hotheads. They get angry all the time and fight. <laughs> I mean, there's Matthew, also called Levi, Bartholomew, also called Nat, uh, Nathaniel, Thaddeus, also called Judas, the son of James, Simeon, the Canaanian, or Simeon the Zealot, uh, and Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him, called Judas Iscariot, not because that's an official last name or because his name means dagger. Right, which is some people say, but it's just to separate him from Judas, the son of James, right? Um, and these are all Jewish men, because Jesus has the purpose of selecting the twelve Jews to replace the twelve Jewish tribes of Israel to to present the new Israel. But aside from the fact that they're Jewish men, these guys have nothing in common. They have nothing in common. I mean, you've got some guys that are respectable middle class fishermen. You've got this one guy who's this rich, traitor, tax collector that everybody would hate. And you've got this this other guy who's a zealot, right? This guy is a patriot. He is emphatic. He wants to see Israel overthrow Roman oppression. He's basically a jihadist, right? This dude is going to hate the tax collector, the sellout, the traitor, the rebel, right? They're not going to get along. I mean, you, you see, some were quiet. Some were loud. You, you, you see, some were impetuous, like Peter. Others were unmovable in their doubt, like Thomas. You see, some were tactful, and others had no guile, like Nathaniel. You see that some were young, like John. You see, some were old, some were rich, some were poor. Some would be absolute enemies, but the one thing that united them all... Each of them was called by Jesus. They had nothing in common but Christ, and that meant everything. That's why they're there. Here, even here in the beginning of the church, we see the beauty of God's design in diversity in the body. They're different, they're supposed to be different. Here we see the gospel on display as Jesus takes meager men. He takes nobodies. These aren't elite. These aren't super powerful. These aren't the guys that you would pick to have an all-star team. These are nobodies. And he, make, he brings them and unites them in himself to use them to fulfill his purposes, even his betrayal. I mean, John is clear that Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. This is not a surprise, but it's meant to fulfill Jesus' purposes. And the amazing thing is this. When you get a ragtag bunch of people that have nothing in common, you know, that have no real significance, and you bring them together, 
you know, unite them in Christ so that they inevitably will turn the world upside down with what they're proclaiming and that they will give their lives as a sacrifice for Jesus. The only person that can receive any glory for that at all is Jesus Christ. The only person. No one can take credit for that. These guys are nothing. His glory is shown in their weakness. His power is displayed in ours as we, the weak and different from one another, unite in the transforming power of the gospel and then go on mission for him. And aside from legend, aside from stories, aside from tales within the Catholic Church, which some may be true and some may be not, I'm not questioning or disputing all those things, these men disappear out of history. Thaddeus, it's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. We never hear about him again. Right? We, we don't know what happened to these guys. They're just 12 ordinary men. But by the grace of God, their ministry continues on. Not because of what they have done, but because of the grace of God working in and through them. This is an amazing thing, guys. They turned the world upside down with the things that they were teaching. Upside down. You think that God can't do that today? You think that God doesn't intend to take a bunch of people that have nothing in common, a small group of people, say, gathered in the Hawthorne Suites Conference Center right now, you know, people that, you know, different nationalities, different backgrounds, different life stages, you know, all this kind of stuff and desire to bring us together, unite us on mission for Christ, to see our lives changed and transformed, and to see us go out and give our lives for the sake of the gospel, and that that won't result in change? It does. It will. Just promise. We see it right here. These guys are nobody. But Jesus is great. So this is what it means to be a disciple. It's not that you stand faceless in a crowd. It's not that you um, you use Jesus to your own ends. That he's just an amusement to you, or at best, he's somebody that you can profit from. It's not to be near to Jesus, because the crowd was near to Jesus. It's not even to confess Jesus, but to not be with him, or be changed by him, or be united with him for his purposes. Right? Because we can confess Jesus, and he really not be our Lord. We can confess Jesus, and he really not be our Savior. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you are going to have to decide, are you going to be with the many or with the few? Are you going to be a spectator or are you going to be with your Savior? Are you going to sit in the crowd or are you called by Jesus to be with Jesus and to do what Jesus does? That's what it means to be a disciple. And I hope that you'll follow the gospel call to be a disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word that it's not about what I do, but about what you are doing. We have to start with who Jesus is. Can I pray that as we we sit here and we reflect on your word, as we sing songs, that your spirit would be at work, 
revealing to us, confirming to us that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has all authority, that He gave His life. He sacrificed Himself to be a substitute to pay for our rebellion against You, God. That though we have made ourselves enemies and placed us under Your wrath, that You have offered Him freely so that those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus might be saved, might be reconciled, might spend eternity with You, Lord. And God, I pray that the weight of the gospel would impress on us so much that we would long to be your disciples. That we wouldn't just be content with uh, fitting Christianity into parts of our lives, but that we would truly be identified with and changed by and, and united with God's church as we go on mission to fulfill your purposes, your commission as being a community of faith that goes on mission for God, that we would truly be disciples of Jesus who make disciples for Jesus. God, I pray that this would revolutionize our way of thinking. That we would not live as the world lives that we would be with Christ and that we would fulfill the purposes that He calls us to do, to preach, to be active. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.